<laughs> All right, we're really doing Thai restaurants? Yeah. Okay. We're, we're scraping the barrel at this point. Are we? Well, it's a big barrel. Mm-hmm. Welcome to Jeremy's Iron. This is an evidence-based podcast about science, research, and Sydney Thai restaurants. Really? Yep. yep. <laughs> I'm going back for mine. Uh, Justin with me. Justin by my Thai. And me, Justin, New Chinatown. <laughs> I think By My Tie was in Newtown like 10 years ago. I don't, don't think it know it anymore. It's like Charles Tie. With me, uh, Newtown Tie 2. <laughs> Justin. <laughs> big Boy Tie 3. <laughs> Justin Big Boy. <laughs> big Boy. So this is a science podcast. Uh, coming up in this episode, we deal with a lot of new science research. We're going to be talking today about the link between mental health issues in young people and their digital technology use, Mm -hmm. that old chestnut. We're going to look at why Australian men have the longest lifespan of all men on the world, apparently. News to me. Uh, And if if the mode of delivery affects the possibility of generating ADD in the child, so there's a theory that cesarean deliveries or children who have uh, the product of cesareans tend to have more ADHD symptoms. So we're going to see if that holds any water. But the main topic for today, give us a quick rundown. We are going to talk about bacteriophages. So bacteriophages are another way of treating infections. And so, uh, you know, in the context of the world's dilemma about antibiotic resistance and superbugs, uh, we're looking east for some alternative therapies. And again, do they hold water? Are they real? Are they safe? Do they work? Are they dangerous? What are they? I'm excited. This is Jeremy Zion. And we're going to talk about toilets as well. Not that you know it yet. I know where this is going. Like, uh, I like it. Yeah. So I said at the top we're going to talk about toilets. Now mm-hmm. I know we said this is a science podcast, but I got I got to take up an issue with we you. Before here. we start any scientific yeah. chat, we had a uh, piece of mail come in for us to ask whether this is from Noni asking, do you guys disagree with anything? Because we tend to we tend to agree with everything on this podcast pretty much. Yeah. yeah. And look, you're a smart guy. I like what you say. <laughs> I'm with you. But there is a bone of contention which which came up a few days ago. Mm-hmm. And I want to put it to the listeners because yep. it's about gendered toilets. Yep. And okay, so we're basically on the same... I think we, we both agree that there should be male toilets and female toilets. When you're so when binary, aren't you? You think they're men? <laughs> yeah. You think people, right. people should be men and women? Let's get, let's get fucking woke with this <laughs> yeah. already, right? No. And toilets, toilets should be about... You got your men's toilets, you got your women's toilets, right? <laughs> Why don't we have different bathrooms for black people too while we're at it, yeah, okay? Right. <laughs> okay, so the point of contention between us is that um, if you've got multi, multi-cubicle toilets, you're cool with it being a male toilet and a female toilet, right? So it's a big... You're cool with that, right? I mean... You I'm wanna... cooler with that. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, right. So your issue... Do you want to explain what your issue is? Yeah, my issue is... If you go to um, if you go to buildings where the facilities are single-stall bathrooms... Now, hospitals have this all the time. In fact, in a hospital, most toilets are often single-stalled units. Yep. Um, restaurants, you see it sometimes. Single-stall things. Um... Servos is an example I came across a couple of days ago. You don't tend to see like multi, multi-stall kind of communal toilets. You tend no. to see like the single thing, right? Um, I don't understand why those are gendered. If you have two bathrooms, men and women, why not just make them just two bathrooms, two unisex bathrooms that anyone can use, <laughs> and that way you don't have three people standing outside of one and no one using the other that's just totally empty. I mean, it's still a perfectly serviceable toilet. There are just nothing... Well, okay, so my, my argument against that is that if I was if I was a woman, there's yep. no way I'd want to share a bathroom that a man has just like a, a, a public toilet that is, yeah, with men. 
I just I wouldn't want to do it because men stand up when they pee and they have an aiming issue. Well, then don't use the public toilets, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) Stay home. That's your answer, right? That's your answer. Well, some people have the exact same excuse about using any toilets in public, which are I don't want to use public toilets because other people have been there and they're filthy. Yeah, that is the nature of the beast, my friend. No, but I mean, like if if I would say that you need to. Allow women to use public toilets, right? I mean, you're not saying. <laughs> I'm not saying I wouldn't not allow them to use them. But if they have any issues about their cleanliness, well, they just should use them. Go home. See, I, th- I thought this was actually going to be a legitimate like point of contention, but I feel like that I can't I can't argue with that because that's <laughs> no, just a, an ideolo- ideological point of view, <laughs> an insane one. Look, okay, no, look. it's totally sane. Explain. It's, it's, what do you it's mean? insane. It's insane to have underutilized resources just for the sake of a sign on the front. But you, you, you take no stock in my argument that I don't want to sit in someone else's pee, a dude's pee. Well, I think that bathrooms should be serviced appropriately. Like they should be kept clean by the, by the provider of the facility. Unrealistic. Not How many necessarily. I find that most, look, I'll be honest, the most men's room I go to Outside of, usually the servos are the ones that are not maintained at all. They're filthy for everyone. I assume they're Because fi- yeah. I have used the women's uh, toilets in the at servos. Yeah. Yeah, they're filthy. Like, they're, they're, they're disgusting all around. But if you go to most, like, hotels or restaurants or wherever else, they're the same. In fact, at hospitals now, they are typically unisex. And they're just fine. They're clean toilets. There's no pee in the seats. I don't see the issue. Okay, well, I've got a... Although I was at a servo yesterday and there's literally urine everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) On the mirror, on the walls, all over the seat. Well, look, there you go. I feel like that is a point at which we are different. We differ on there because I'm I'm still going to maintain that I feel like single stalled bathrooms could still be gendered and it makes total sense. Unless you want to split it. Your disgust with the way that men use toilets makes me think that you would most want to be using the women's toilets. Absolutely I would, but I respect that like... You got to you got to separate it between people that stand and people that sit when they do number ones, right? Right. That's just that's that is the line of distinction. In fact, if you were a dude and you always sat, I feel like you should be allowed to use. Now, now you can start arguing that sitting and standing. Yeah, that's right. So it should literally just be a picture on the front of these stalls. A standing person, standing person, person. and a sitting person. End of story, right? But we all agree. No no genders, no sexes. We all agree. No squatters. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, squatters, you're out in the bushes, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, you you don't need these facilities. <laughs> so in terms of the, because it's all about resource allocation, right? Yeah. If we talk about efficient use of toilets, if you don't need a toilet, get, get out, out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Shit or get off the pot, right? <laughs> you can go around the back of the servo, my friend. Yeah. Take a shit or get off the pot. That is the byline for the Jeremy Zion podcast. Uh-huh. All right. Uh, that was a little bone of contention we had we solved nothing by the way so i'm, I'm glad that but we welcome people to weigh in on my side yeah please debate. please do give us an email at jeremyzionpodcast at gmail.com we're also on facebook i'm sure we're going to sort out our social media at some point i actually this is quite funny i put a an ad up on facebook for us yeah i, I slot slotted 20 bucks on a uh-huh. on an ad on facebook just to see what would happen right yeah sure um and it asks you to direct it to people and what sort of interests they would be in, they would have, right? And so I've put in like I put in Richard Dawkins. Oh yeah, I, so I went real went, specific with yeah, it because yeah, I was right. like, if you're into Richard Dawkins, the last episode we did was on um, creationism, right? Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay, people who are Richard Dawkins fans, I'll get something on creationism. Suckers, they're going to get. See, this is why I agree with you. Right, but this <laughs> is what a smart I did. guy. My, I'm not that smart because the, <laughs> the ad I put was, "Can we defend creationism?" Question mark, which was the name of the last podcast, of course, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And basically, I put it up, and I got all these responses saying, "No, no, 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 <laughs> no, no one listened. <laughs> no one." Uh, I I, yeah, okay. so I don't think I got many people like I don't know attracted into the podcast with that. Know, we got to choose our headlines title. carefully, yeah, I right? Think I need a little bit of uh, coaching yeah. on how to. Uh, okay, yeah, we need some marketing advice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope I hope I, I get sort out my shit and figure out how to do that properly. But uh, yeah, get in touch with us, like us on. In fact, you know what? This is our twentieth episode. If you want to do something for us, if you're listening to us, do that thing that other people ask on their podcast, which is go to iTunes and rate us and do all that kind of shit. Tell a friend. Tell a friend. Like us on Facebook. And go and use the opposite gender's bathroom as a show of support. 
That's right. <laughs> Do some graph in there as well, if you wouldn't mind. If That'd t- really good. Yeah. I feel like that could be a way we get the name of this podcast uh, out, by the way. Graffito. And I think if we can get some kind of like... Uh, Jeremy's Ironers Unite. <laughs> yeah. Grassroots movement to put graffiti in toilet stalls everywhere. Jeremy's Iron Podcast. So if you're listening, the thing you can do for us, don't, don't rate us on iTunes. Next time you go to a public toilet, yeah. just graph on the wall, Jeremy's Iron Podcast. Mm-hmm. Take a picture of it, send it to us, and we'll give you a free hat. <laughs> a free Jeremy's Iron hat. Yeah, we, we haven't made yet, but <laughs> if you do it, we'll make a hat for you yep. and we'll send it out to you. Yeah, definitely. That's a, dude, that's a great idea. Not bad. Yeah. Take it to the toilets. <laughs> All right. How do you feel about... Well, that, that reminds me, on that topic, it's funny you mentioned the idea of graffitoing bathroom stalls as a means of kind of advertising the podcast. When I was a kid, we had a book. Now, you know I love trivia, information. I mean, that's why we do this thing, right? Of course. So there was a phenomenon back in the, I guess, the 90s for bathroom readers. So it's a book you have in the bathroom. So the one we had was called Uncle John's Bathroom Reader. Right. And it's just a big book of trivia. Every page was a different topic. French Revolution antibiotics to kind of go into today's thing mm-hmm. just a totally random different page about an invention a piece of history information an unusual thing that happened and it was just a big tome of information to sit and read before we had cell phones mm. in the can so it kind of makes sense you know that the uh, the toilet is sort of the the home of of wild information <laughs> and education you know um, one of one of my friends and yours marcus yeah i distinctly remember his like the toilet in his place when we were growing up. Yeah. He had a little basket there with some, you know, reading material. Of course. Warhammer mags. Just get, just upping your, uh, you know, fantasy knowledge as you're taking a dump. That is the, the least the useful magazine and, yeah. to have. <laughs> you want to know about the, the you know, the, the hit points for each of the wood elves <laughs> and, you know. <laughs> when else are you going to like look, download I could, that information? I could look at almost anything. <laughs> if I'm in a waiting room, like my threshold for what I can like entertain yeah. myself with is pretty low. You know, nine-year-old OK magazines <laughs> or like <laughs> Women's Weekly. I work in a hospital, man. Like yeah. that's that's thriving content. <laughs> I don't mind. You give me a Warhammer mag. I don't know what to do with that, man. That's that's exciting content while you're dropping a D9 in the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> in the old toilet. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Yes, you do. All right. Should we do a bit of news, Justin? This is where I'm going to shout at you with uh, the new science research that's just come out. And you're going to tell me. Yeah. Well, you're going to explain it to me because... Science at me. You're the doctor here. I am. I just do the stats. Yeah. So we'll take a little break, then we'll come back with what we call News Just In. Jeremy Zion. It's a podcast about science and research, and this is the research component. Are you ready for the most recently released research? I'm not sure I'm ready. Okay, well, this one comes out of Clinical Psychology Science magazine, blog, journal. I don't know, but it sounds like a real thing. Uh, It's called Young Adolescents Digital Technology Use and Adolescents Mental Health Symptoms. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty intelligible title. When did this come out? Uh, this week, I mean, uh, this week or last, 2019. Yeah. So this is kind of fresh. revisiting a topic that we covered in the maybe the first episode. Yeah, but I'll tell you why I'm bringing it up because uh, we all know that technology use uh, is up. Same with mental health issues, mm-hmm. particularly with the youngsters. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this sheds some doubt on whether those two are connected in a causative sense. Oh. Yeah. So it basically came out saying like. Uh, there's not as much connection here between these two things as one might believe. Um, so I'll just give you a few a few of the before I, I give you the, the final conclusion. Mm-hmm. I'll give you the beginning of this, which is that um, how much do you think teens teens these days teens teens spend um, on screen media for non school purposes? Ooh, how many hours a day? Good question. Uh, teen. So teen is what's a tween? Answer the damn. So we're talking like thirteen to eighteen. Sure. Like, yeah, yeah. High yeah. school teens. Yeah. Right. Uh, high school kids. I'm gonna say like, you know, what? 
So we're adding up all the little bits they use. So you, for the sake of the argument, you've got a phone with an app that's monitoring all, basically all screen time yeah. on that phone. Yeah. That's going to be... Non-school screen use per day. Wow. I bet it adds up. I bet you it's like four and a half hours. Six and two thirds hours. Yeah. 6.67 hours per day on mm-hmm. screens. Outside of school. Yes, yeah, so a that, lot. That is a, that's an a quarter of the day. amount. That's right. Um, and not and preteens apparently four point six hours a Dude, day. Dude, that's half your wake time. Yeah. Well, not really. No, but look, it's not far off. Yeah. Right. For every minute that you're doing something, walking, interacting, you're having screen time. Yeah. So that's essentially, nuts. this is a this is a uh, we're never going to be able to stop the charge of technology in this sense. And so, trying to figure out whether there's a link between this and mental health concerns is the MO of this paper. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there are three hypotheses about the potential links between anxiety, depression, and screen use. Um, they've got great names. Well, there's a place, the displacement hypothesis. So, I guess people were suggesting that if you're using the technology, you're actually not doing other social behaviors that might improve one's mental health, right? Mm-hmm. So, you're isolated potentially in your own world and you're not engaging you know, with friends outside, yeah. getting sun, all this kind of stuff. Sure, so we've also had some research, I think, in one of those early podcasts where we found that the opposite was also proposed, that it actually connects people. Well, you've stumbled across the second one of these hypotheses, which is the digital Goldilocks hypothesis. <laughs> you ready for this? Mm-hmm. So um, the idea is that with this hypothesis, it's there's like a quadratic function that occurs along screen time and and social media use, right? So if you use social media heaps, like way, way, way too much, there's probably some negatives with that. If you use it too little, there might be some negatives as well because you now miss out on a lot of the social benefits that are on that, on um, social media and stuff, right? Yeah. So the digital Goldilocks is the not too hot, not too cold, right? There's a Goldilocks principle for literally everything in the world, right? Yeah, I know. I would even... Go so far as to say that's that's a inadmissible theory. That's just a fencing thing. <laughs> yeah, it's a good or bad. Well, I have a theory that there it's may a, be a, yeah. a, a good balance, of, a good balance a, yeah. between the two. Like, yeah, well, that's like Christ. Um, but the the third one is this thing called a so, social compensation hypothesis. Now, this gets to the heart of why this is quite difficult to study, right? Mm-hmm. Because we dealt with this before, but um, someone that's more likely, more prone to developing these anxiety, depressive conditions yeah. might be drawn to social media more than someone who's not, right? So sure. it's a social compensation. Like I'm lonely, therefore yeah. I go to social media, right? If I wasn't lonely, maybe I wouldn't be using social media. Uh-huh. And so it's called, this is called confounding, right? It's what in the biz we call confounding such that it's hard to actually draw that causative effect between the use of social media mm-hmm. and the symptoms of... Sure. Um, Depression, hard anxiety. to tease. Yeah. So uh, this particular paper tried to tried to do this. Tried to do this multifactorial study. It was a um, multi-level um, maximum likelihood function thing they do. Um, Did you approve the stats? Was it? I had a look. Sound? It was, it, yeah, it seemed okay. Um, it was grade three to six. They had a sample of um, I think two thousand students from grade three to six in a state school in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, they got them to do... This is the, the part that I don't like but, about it. But three to six aren't teens. Um, grade, those, are, those, those are tweens. Grade three to six. So that's like nine to oh, 12. What? So they... they in and where? What's, where? Where was it done? South Carolina. North, yeah. North Carolina. Yeah, no. In the States, they use grade three to six for, pre- for grade school. Yeah, w- w- wait for it. So, uh-huh. so they enrolled them then. Yeah. And they took some information then. And then sort of... But well, no, grade six is their 12... They'd be like 11, 12 in grade six, right? Yeah. So the actual study then got conducted a few years later when they uh, were so in... So there's like a prospective study. Yeah. That. Yeah, cool. yeah. So then it was like five to... Years five to eight. Mm-hmm. Or no, six to nine. Anyway, they started becoming in the that sort of team area, right? Yeah. Um, now, what they did was this thing called an ecological momentary assessment. And this is the thing I don't like about it, right? Right. But I don't like the sound of this either. No, it doesn't. So, you'd think <laughs> that the that? way they monitor the screen time would be, you know, install an app on your phone. Yeah. It just does it all for you. It registers what you're looking at and all this kind of stuff, right? Well, even to be honest, at that age, you're not using your phone for school. So, any 
phone access is going to be. Yeah. And your phone does, you don't even need an app. Your phone tells you what it's been used for. So you just check the phone every month and yeah, whatever. Anyway. But what they did was the, the EMA, Ecological Momentary Assessment, basically it was an app on their phone that three times a day, it would prompt them to answer questions. How do you feel? How mm. much screen time have you used? Blah, 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 blah. So it's all self-reported, which I freaking hate. Yeah, no, that's useless. As it's well, just up from useless, you know, um, yeah. in my personal opinion. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so this Especially is where a lot of this no stuff need is for like, it. come on, yeah, there's no need for it in terms of the technology, technology aspect, right? Yeah, you have to self-report symptoms of anxiety and depression. I mean, there's no, there's no real great way. I think it's doubly useless if you're self-reporting both the intervention and the outcome yeah. in the same questionnaire. That's right. Because so, in your mind, you're already confounding your own variables exactly and your right. answers. Like it's, at very least, you need to separate both questions by a period of like hours to be like, how much are you using? And then come back a couple hours later and say, how are you feeling? That's right. So some temporal separation, but even then, I think that's, that's, that's a rough one. That's a rough hang. Yep. So look, my, my thoughts on the matter, particularly on this on the paper as a whole and not super duper positive. Um, but they come out and they, they've done this study. It's 2000, which is a pretty decent amount of people in a study, to be mm-hmm. honest with you. Um, these results and those of many other studies cited here suggest that we need to move beyond a focus on adolescence quantity or frequency of technology use and towards a more comprehensive approach to establish, establishing best practice for educating, parenting, supporting, blah, blah, blah. I can get behind that because I feel like... Yeah, but that's from the... Journal of Duh. Yeah, I know. Come on. Yep. What I want to see at very least is in these very difficult to study sort of social science Hmm. um, analyses is at least harness technology. If if it's involving technology, at least use technology like an adult to to try and get some concrete data. So at least one pillar of your your study is actually concrete. Yep. And then the rest can be all made of like stuffed animals and jello <laughs> right because this sounds like it was being like the structure was come up with by old people who've never used a cell phone yeah who are like oh, cell phones are no good and which may be totally right but they show no insight into how they actually work hmm. and what they can glean out of that data and i find that really frustrating so yeah i call that one a dud just dud next one that one's fit for the pit news just in uh australian men have the highest longevity in the world Apparently, some study was done where um, by the uh, ANU, so out of Australia, bias, question mark? Don't know. You be the judge. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I'm not suggesting they would be biased. But um, yeah, so apparently we're due to live the longest um, in the world. What? Give me numbers here. uh, Okay, so this is interesting. Mm -hmm. It says um, an average life expectancy of 74.1, which to me sounds very Low, low. Very low. Now... This is where it gets interesting around the um, methods. So, if you're trying to assess life expectancy, right, mm-hmm. in 2018, yeah, 19, let's sure. say, how, how would you do it? How would you assess the life expectancy now? Let's, I'll put you in the hot seat a little bit of men or of women, or let's just say men. Well, as in life expectancy of someone young now for later, or. That's a question. I mean, we have all of the birth and death data for everyone, essentially everyone for the last probably 200 years, yeah. right? We've, we've had very tight records for all that. So I, we can, I can tell you exactly what the average age of death is in 2018. But that's reflective of people who are essentially still wartime livers or just post, right? And That's right. Whatever else. So very different lifestyles what we have now. And that wouldn't be reflective necessarily of the increasing obesity epidemic that that younger people are facing now and the popularity or lack of popularity of smoking now versus environmental Mm. kind of problems. Um, So if we have people, let's say, dying on average at, I thought it was like 80 for women or 84 for women, that would not be reflective of what you predict my life expectancy to be. So what are you asking? Are you asking what is the expectancy for someone born this year? for someone at age X this year or someone who's dying this year. Well, that's exactly the point, right? So this is the, the, the issue with, cre- with creating these um, yeah. life expectancies is that it's not really that simple. Um, as you said, if you were to try to take a snapshot of 2019, mm. you've got all this confounding because the people who are dying at their older age, right? Yeah, have nothing the to people do that died with people who are living now. Exactly right. Yeah. 
So what they do is they do this thing called a, a lagged cohort life expectancy, right? Love so it. a cohort life expectancy is you look at, for example, people that born in, we could do it from people that have already died, like people born in 1920. Mm-hmm. We can see of a cohort of people born in 1920, mm-hmm. we can see the life expectancy of those people because most yeah. of them by now have pretty much died apart from a few. Mm-hmm. Um, so that we can get a pretty clear picture of if you were born in 1920, yeah, how many years you are to survive, right? If you're born, unfortunately, we can't do that yeah. as we keep going up. So No, but we can get, given the fact we have probably 100 years of data or more, you can do that for every year and get a trend. 100 years of... We have 100 and something years of birth and death data, right? So we can work out what the trend is for people born every year. Oh, and that's essentially what this is doing. Yeah. So this is using the, the lagged cohort life expectancy is essentially trying to create this um, model using these mm-hmm. cohorts so we can drag it up to 2018, 2019, yeah. or whatever it is, right? So look, I don't, still don't quite understand how it comes out with the number 74.1 because to me, that seems quite low. But that presumably also involves... If you're thinking about mean age, right? Mm. There's there's people who are dying in their twenties, and that's dragging down the mean age mm-hmm. significantly, right? Yeah. And again, the lag we're talking about is a really big lag. I mean, we're talking about a lag of seventy four years at the moment, right? Basically, yeah, between birth and death. So, the last data we have for a for a birth cohort is seventy four years ago, right? And the world has changed significantly in seventy four years. Yeah. So even though I can imagine that a trend between 1900 and 1930 or 40, there may be a linear trend in one direction or another, whatever it is. That trend I would expect to break down at somewhere around the baby boomers, right? So once you hit 19, what, late 40s to early 60s, mm. there's be, I think it'd be a precipitous change in that trend. Um, so I'm not sure how predicted those data are given the length of that lag and what's happened in that in the time frame of that lag. Mm. Right? Do you agree? Yeah, I'm, I'm with yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I guess that's the, that's the kind of contention with it. But um, there's, there's a singularity, that, basically, hmm. you know, with like computing technology and and research and everything else that's happened hmm. in the last fifty or sixty years. But I think interestingly enough, it's, Australia comes out on top for for numerous. Oh, we, can, we we'll get towards the top, obviously, because we live in a you know yeah. standard of living is High. among the highest. Yeah. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if that's somewhat true, because to me. The one thing Australia does that I don't think any other country does as well... Is keep people alive. Well, in the sense that they stop them smoking, they certainly freaking do, right? There's, I don't know if there's that many other countries in the world with such a high standard of living that has such an anti-smoking stance that Australia has. I don't think that we change our smoking stance at a significantly different time to many other countries. Around the, Within years, around the same time, within spitting distance when we got rid of smoking in bars and restaurants and terraces, it happened everywhere. No, but sure. But if you look at smoking rates in Australia versus the rest of the world, it is a huge gap between Australia and most Still. other. Yeah, European countries, absolutely, absolutely. European countries, I see for sure. Yeah. What about Canada? Canada's interesting. I don't know. This is off the top of my head here. But... You're making these numbers up. Yeah, I'm with you. Though. <laughs> I'll go with it. We're gonna light up after this, I think. <laughs> Get lit. <laughs> And finally, on news, Justin, this is just a quick one, but mm-hmm. um, we talked about a little bit of this before. Caesarean delivery. This comes out of, um, I didn't write it down. It comes out of the, the JAMA. Sure. Which is the American, what is it? The, the Journal of... The American Medical Association. Medi- yeah, Journal of American. JAMA. JAMA. Association of Caesarean Delivery. Yeah. With risk of neurodevel- neurodevelopmental and psychiatric disorders in the offspring. So there was a theory and it's, it's kind of been borne out that in the process of a natural, quote unquote, natural vaginal birth, mm-hmm. there is a transfer of um, bacteria that happens. Yeah. So when you, when you gave me the heads up about this, uh, this topic, yeah. that was my theory. So that was right. My working hypothesis was that we're talking about a microflora you, that's biome right. situation again and a gut brain axis. Sort of our pet topic around here, isn't it, it lately? It kind of is. It keeps on coming up. And guys, I swear to God, we're not looking for this. Like, this isn't like a, a, a passion project of ours, but it just seems to be everywhere. Or at least proposed as an possi- explanation for so many things. Hmm. But uh, yeah, keep going. So basically, 
they found that, well, cesareans have gone from 6% in 1990, 6% of all births, mm-hmm. to 21% in 2015. I love it. That's what it should be. What do you mean by that? What's the... Have you seen a natural birth? <laughs> okay, that's good. It's grisly. We're not doing it right. <laughs> there shouldn't be that much blood and screaming and trauma. There shouldn't be the rate of people, both parties dying <laughs> if we're doing it right. There, there's either another hole or something else that, that we have just forgotten. How many, how many years of medicine are you uh, now tracking? Deep. <laughs> uh, I don't know, 18? I feel like you're definitely not in the running for a mid-career change to obstetrics, are you? <laughs> no, I well, no, but I, I considered it for a while. Well, when yeah. I was doing, and, and when well, I was, it sounds like until you figured out what was involved. Yeah, until I was like, <laughs> wait a minute, what? How are we born? I was, I did, I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, no, when I did obstetrics, I, uh, I liked a lot of it. I was really down with it. Hmm. Um, I did not like that side of it, though. And I, that was that's a deal breaker, I think. Um, but Caesars, that was cool. Okay, well, um, cut that baby out. It's up to, yeah, so 21% now to 2015. Yeah. Um, but what they found was there was a 33% increased odds now adjusted for all the things you like to adjust for, you know. Um, Weather, hair color. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, classic confounders. Uh, the autism spectrum disorder yeah. had a 33% increased odds mm-hmm. and ADHD had a 17% increased odds. So that means that if you were born cesarean, you yeah. have an increased chance of developing these conditions. Well, look, we we spoke about this a few weeks ago about um, that study with the mice and the fecal transplants mm-hmm. and the gut flora of these. Um, uh, well, they, remember they took the they took the fecal matter of autistic children and gave them to the mice. So they did a fecal transplant on otherwise you know so quote unquote normal mice. And remember they found that the mice are displaying autistic-like behavior yep. as a result? And then they reversed that by giving them back their own or normal mouse gut flora, and that seemed to reverse that behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, so we started putting together this idea, together with this anecdotal evidence that off-label fecal transplants for autistic kids seems to have some therapeutic benefit, that there could be, again, this microbiome gut-brain axis thing that seems to be in effect. So this would be sort of a going back and giving us sort of the, the foundation for that, the why, as in why would these kids have a different gut flora? Well, it could be because they're not exposed to the nat, to the, to the, you know, the native vaginal canal microflora that most kids are, hmm. right? So the showing that autism and ADD are, again, very much a symptom of our newfangled world. Hmm. So this is good, man. That's, that's a really good one. Cause that is, I'm not saying behind this, and we'd still need to do a deeper dive on some of that information about autism and ADHD and we need to just do a whole series on it. I well, look, there's a lot there. Jeremy Zion does the microbiome. No, well, people talk about it so much, and there is a, this seems meaty to me, and I think we should do more talking about this idea of the gut-brain axis, which sounds super airy fairy, mm. but there is a lot of research about it, and uh, I think we need to do uh, a bit more of a clinical dive into that stuff. But this is really good. I like that. That kind of is a precursor to that <laughs> prior study. Yeah. Cool. We're building the, the puzzle here, aren't we? Slowly, piece by piece. That is it. That is it. We are answering the big questions here. The big questions on Jeremy Zion. Jeremy Zion podcast. If you dig us. Uh, dot com. Yeah, jeremyzion.com. <laughs> I look at you with doubt in my eyes as to whether that's our website. But it is. It's jeremyzion.com, so you can check it out there. I had an idea just um, now. We spoke yesterday about having a podcast network. Yes. Listeners, don't get too excited, but yes, we are in the process of producing a few other shows um, to be members of the Jeremy's Iron Podcast Network, and I think I have a name for it. Jeremy's Ironworks. Jeremy's Ironworks is good. I thought the Jeremy, right. Jeremy's Ironing Board. Well, we would be on the Jeremy's Ironing Board. <laughs> oh, of course. But, but I, th- the I, think, I think Jeremy's, Jeremy's Ironworks, Ironworks is pretty good, right? Not bad. Yeah. Okay. You could just call it the Ironworks. That's also pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. That's cool. All right. Well, uh, we're having a very short break and we'll come back with the main slice of pizza for today, which is about bacteria. We'll be back, back in a sec.
and, right. and in your time, that might have been hours. In our time, that was like three seconds. <laughs> it was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I got a. Um, uh, I, I had a nice long breath. What I know about you? I had a child. <laughs> wow. I had a family <laughs> in that time. We recorded that first segment three and a half years ago. Now we're back. <laughs> All right, what you got for me? Hit me with this. Uh, piece of research okay that we're gonna delve so into. you do all the news just in science stuff you must be coming across tons of things about antibacterial resistance and superbugs and it gets talked about in the news all the time certainly gets talked about on sam harris's podcast that happened two weeks ago two weeks ago yeah, yeah. but you've heard that before right i have this isn't just a post sam harris <laughs> conversation no. we're having I, I the thing that i find amazing about the idea of bacterial resistance is the idea that it's this ongoing war between mm. bacteria and scientists trying to yeah. unlock the new drug that's going to attack mm. it, right? I, I love that. And we anyway. spoke about antibiotics a few months ago on yeah. the show, right? And how we how they discovered. Do you want well, to give our listeners just a quick rundown as to how what antibiotic resistance? Actually, we spoke about um, vaccination really more, but you know, yeah, we're talk, we're all kind of the same ballpark here. We're on the same page. You want me to talk about how resistance occurs? Just very quickly, give us give us the the three sentence. Uh, breakdown yeah. of how okay, so we have bacteria bacteria are one of the leading causes of pathogens causes of illness yep you know, or serious illness um bacteria are tiny little you know single-celled organisms mm-hmm. which can you know invade and infect us um and we have worked out after in a, in a post-penicillin world we've worked out uh, a series of agents and they're not necessarily all the same in terms of how they work they all work slightly differently but they tend to work by attacking either a part of the bacterial cell wall or uh, they go into the cell itself and they attack um, one of the little things inside the cell that controls replication and they disrupt the cell's normal activity mm-hmm. and they either they work I think basically one of a couple of ways either they destroy the cell from the inside out and just explode it or they can again alter its replication so that it no longer reproduces, and then eventually, when it just dies, it dies and it hasn't had any progeny. So there's kind of two ways of stopping an infection that way. Um, but bacteria are pretty squirrely, right? They've been around for a very long time. They've evolved like we evolve, and they evolve a whole lot faster than we do. And so um, they get used to the environments. Um, Is it because they reproduce so quickly that they they reproduce very quickly, uh, and they have a high degree of mutation in their in their reproduction and all it takes is one of them to reproduce in a way that is no longer sensitive to those antibiotics so we think we look at a bacteria they've got all this in common they've got this kind of a cell wall we can come up with a drug that'll attack that cell wall in this way it'll stick to a protein on the outside bind to it and then once it's bound to it it can do its job well all it takes is one offspring or progeny of, of this bacteria to have a slightly different protein expressed on its cell membrane that the drug we use can no longer bind to it Right. Or it might start producing um, some defense mechanisms that actually attack the drug that we give. So the drug may make its way into the cell, um, and then the bacteria will find a way of actually destroying that agent or deactivating it before it has a chance to do its magic on the bacteria. Hmm. And so, again, these things happen just the same way we've evolved to, you know, ward off predators or environmental things. Mm-hmm. The cells do, the bacteria do the same thing, and they do it very quickly. Um, and so I think historically when bacteria, when Fleming first came up with penicillin, you know, the use of penicillin or a new antibiotic would have something, I think they were saying like 20 years of, of use before we started seeing significant signs of, of resistance to it. So before the bacteria were largely, it wasn't working for as nearly as many as it used to. Um, I think now we're down to like 18 months or two years before you see a significant amount of resistance to those new agents. Jesus. Okay, right? yeah. And so, and as we learned from the Sam Harris podcast, which was a really good primer for this kind of stuff, um, it costs like a billion, like I'm not using like a, uh, I'm not being hyperbolic, it costs around a billion dollars to come up with a new antibiotic, um, which is all well and good if you have the unique license to it for 20 years and it's going to be useful for 20 years. Um, but now you come up with a new antibiotic. Yeah, you might have the patent for 20 years and the rights to produce it with no competition. But it's if, if, it's not, if it's not yeah, useful shit. in two years, well, then you've wasted, you're not going to make a billion dollars off of that drug, right? Yeah. Um, so now from my side, working in healthcare, it's a big deal, right? Because we have people who are constantly trying to monitor how we prescribe antibiotics, make sure we do it properly. And it kills me every time I speak to someone like Michael Haston, a friend of ours a couple of days ago, who said, oh, yeah, my wife is sick. We found some antibiotics in the cabinet, and we're taking them just to be safe. Fuck 
Oh my and God, he said that. Yeah, he did. And I was like, dude, you know, hasty. That, I was like, hey, dude. I was like, dude, you know that, like, maybe you don't know, but 90% chance that almost all common colds or versions of it are viral in nature. And he said, yeah, well, you know, but you just, you might as well try the antibiotics to see if it works. I said, well, no, antibiotics do not work against viruses. They just don't. They don't work the same way. There is no cross, there's no chance it could work, you know. Um, they don't work that way. And secondly, the odds of it working for the bug that you, if you did have a bacteria, the odds of it being the right one, you've got to tailor the bacteria, the, yeah. the, the antibiotic to the bug you actually do have. And so all you're going to do is kind of weaken the effect of those antibiotics. And why would he, uh, the idea of them, him having antibiotics lying around implies that he didn't take a full course the first time, right? I probably. Mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. And also that it was probably used inappropriately the first time as well. That's what I said. Yeah. Because there's very few times, as in probably didn't need antibiotics. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah there's yeah. actually very few things that most people really need antibiotics for. Like yeah. pneumonias can be bacterial. Um, like, GIT or like you know vaginal infections can be can be uh, either bacterial or fungal, but most things make people sick on a daily basis are viral. So what does the study tell us? What what what, what is well, it? So the issue is so we, what we know is that antibiotics are getting less and less useful. There's less and less people making them because the, the financial incentive isn't there. And so are we going to be in a pre-antibiotic world again in the next decade or two? That's kind of the big concern. But if you could think of the perfect solution to the problem, this is like the Wim Hof thing, right? Which is, you know, in a perfect world, how would you challenge this? Yeah. Or how would you work this out? If you in a perfect world, what kind of an agent would you have that could get rid of bacterial infections? The twin of the bacteria, right? No, you're going you're going too close. Okay, no, no. <laughs> too close to the bone here. But just I guess uh, knowing potentially the answer to this, yeah, you're using bacteria against itself. Is that what's happening? Or well, you, what you want to use is. Bacteria are so evasive because they can, they're living organisms and they can change and they can mutate and they can grow um, and divide and replicate and it's, they're a moving target, right? So the best thing to do is to have a moving target to fight that moving target, right? Something that also moves and grows and replicates. Um, and we do have that. Viruses, you know, viruses, so bacteria infect us, viruses also infect us. But the same way that a virus can infect our cell, a virus can also infect a bacteria cell. Think about it. A virus mm. doesn't really care what cell it's infecting. Mm. All it wants to do is replicate, right? That's right. Yeah. Bacterial, so eukaryotic, prokaryotic, it doesn't care. If it can get the goods of a anything, they, if they can piggyback the replication process of a cell, it'll It'll do, do it. it. So they actually think that there are more... Bac- so there are these viruses, and they're called bacteriophages. So bacteria for bacteria. Phage means... I don't know. I, I actually don't know what phagos? that is. Phagos? Sorry. Oh. My, my Greek ancestry... Turns in their uh, so yeah. island. So they mean eat too. I think it's like uh, I think it means eat. Phagos. Yeah, phagos. Okay, eats so, bacteria. Yeah, so bacteria eaters. Right. Uh, so these viruses will actually infect bacteria and destroy them from the inside out. Mm-hmm. At the be you know in the process of replicating themselves within the bacteria, um, and so some signs suggest that there actually may be more bacteriophages than any other form of life on earth what well if you think about it people say that you know one of the common kind of uh statements about bacteria is that there's more bacterial life than any other life in the world right because think about their bacteria are on things and in everything so if you're alive there's a bacteria yeah. in you it's on you it's yeah. around everything right for every one of you there's trillions of bacteria so yeah. kind of makes sense there should be more bacteria but if the bacteria are, are in us and bacteriophages are in bacteria. Well, then it makes sense. There's actually more bacteriophages okay, I get it now. than anything right. else, right? Yeah, yeah. So for every, they have the same problem that we do. Um, so they were first described back in like 1896 or something hmm. when someone noticed that the Ganges may be, have some agent in it that was actually, seemed to kill cholera. So cholera was obviously a devastating bacterial hmm. illness, but there seemed to be something that for sometimes cholera would go away. And it may be there was something in the Ganges so, you know, a giver of like a, a, a health spring of some sort that was actually getting rid of that. Um, and then in the early 1900s, I think it was like 1917, there was a French slash French Canadian doctor who actually kind of looked deeper and found that, yeah, there actually is something that seems to be infecting bacteria. And he's the one that first called it bacteriophages. Um, so this guy, his name was, I'll tell you right now, Felix Durell, D-apostrophe-A-G-R-E-L-L-E. So he was a, he was working at the Pasteur Institute 
So this is going back to our previous podcast about Louis Pasteur mm. and, um, and vaccinations. So he worked out that, that yeah, viruses infect not just us, but also other bacteria, and they can destroy bacteria. And maybe we could be using this to actually you harness the power of the virus against the bacteria. The because they'll actually also change and replicate and mutate mm-hmm. to keep on attacking what they want to attack. Because the, the viruses themselves have a vested interest in survival. Their survival is dependent upon killing bacteria. Mm. So it's pretty good, right? Great. The other benefit of this stuff is that if you give it in a, you can give it in a reasonably small dose because once it finds the bacteria, it finds it, which is its target. It doesn't, it can't attack anything else other than the bacteria that it's designed to, to attack. attack. Yeah. It replicates in that bacteria, kills the bacteria, moves on, and attacks the other bacteria that are nearby. And in the process, it's made more of itself that are specifically targeted at attacking that bacteria. So you can give a low dose, so you don't even barely know you've you've had it. It's not attacking human cells, and it'll keep on replicating and doing its job until there's no more bacteria. When there's no more bacteria, then it the viruses die, die as well. It okay. kind of seems like the perfect solution to the problem, it, right? It, it does, but but certainly, do you have to? Is there is a human intervention required to develop these bacteria phages? Or, I mean, obviously, it's not a, a billion dollar development kind of human it's intervention not, no so what we do is they tend to give people cocktails so they kind of look at a a few different um, viruses that are known to be attacked they're able to attack certain kinds or strains of bacteria and unlike what we do for antibiotics now which is we look at very broad categories of the different kinds of bacteria right all kinds of different bacteria and they live in families and we know that certain antibiotics work for certain kinds of bacteria yep with viruses, you need to be think a bit more specific. You actually need to start looking into the genome of some of these bacteria, or at mm-hmm. least looking at the structure of these actual individual bacteria and work out which viruses may be most effective against that very specific kind of bacteria. Okay. So the idea is that you wouldn't get it from a chemist and you wouldn't have a doctor prescribe you viruses. You actually need to have someone have a much more tailored approach. So we talk about like tailored medicines using the genome and things like that. That's a long way off, but tailored viruses is actually a lot easier to do because you can actually kind of take the bacteria, you can culture the bacteria, and try a series of viruses, find the one that works, inject those in the person. Done. And they work. Is there any risk that, I mean, not knowing much about it, is there a risk that they could give the person a virus that is damaging to the person, as in it can start attacking human cells and there stuff? There is a risk. Because I can feel, I feel like the, you know... Um, yeah. Well, you know, the pro- progressive brigade around health and all this kind sure. of business, alternative health and whatever it is, wellness, they'd be like, don't inject me with viruses, you know? Mm. So well, how look, does that... We're already riddled with viruses. Right, yeah. In fact, you know, I don't know if we spoke about it earlier, but there's a theory that a significant portion of our DNA is actually viral DNA. Okay, right. Because right? viruses actually inject themselves into your DNA. They use your replication process to replicate their own code and in the process oftentimes they actually insert bits of their code into our code so we are part virus we have been exposed to viruses we're full of viruses and if we're talking these bacteriophages being the most abundant organism in the world Mm. well then the fact that most of them aren't killing us and there's a huge genetic diversity or there's an unfathomable genetic diversity out there already means that the odds are for us to come up with one that's actually going to kill us and dangerous be pretty unlikely okay like it's hard enough to get it to work when we're targeting it at the bacteria we care about most things you would do to something would inactivate it rather than activate it and that's what kind of we talked about in that creation talk last week right mm. that it's actually harder to make something constructive than to make something destructive mm. in that fashion right so so what what are we th- th- there's a paper basically saying that this is the future well, or the thing is so we're now 2019 we're about 102 years since this was properly described um, and you think, well, that's been tons of time to nail this process, right? And we should all be using this thing to get rid of our bacterial infections. Not so simple. So it wasn't long after they identified this awesome technology that Fleming came up with his penicillin. And that we found, oh, this is way, way easier. This is yeah. way easier because it's not targeted. It's blanket. It works for like everything. Or at least it did for a while. It's easier to reproduce. It's easier to manufacture done yeah and so for 60 70 80 years we've not had to think about it because we've actually had pretty good results with just regular Mm. regular, um, antibiotics Um, and they actually were better really in many ways than what we'd be getting for the time out of bacteriophages Um, in that time though um, georgia russia kept on working 
on bacteriophages, and they've been used for the last you know, 40, 50, 60 years in those countries. Right. But we don't use them. They're illegal. They're not used in the West at all. Okay. Outside but are research. we about to knock on their door to be like, uh, let, yeah. us, let us in with so, all of your knowledge that you've gained over 50 years? So this years. kind of ties a bit of a bow on the Russia episode Interesting. about with research because... One, one the, of the covert issues, research into what, other kinds What was of, one of the issues that we discussed with the Russian research? Why it doesn't work or why it's so slow? Or what was? Yeah, what was? You tell me. Well, it was it has to be state-sanctioned and there needs to be... But even more simple than that was the language problem. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. There's like no English there, which we saw. Um, and so all this research was done at a very low power because again, funding and things like that, but it was also published exclusively in Russian and wasn't shared in American or European journals, which meant that no one was seeing what was happening in Russia and no one knew it was happening. It was completely off the record and they've been plugging away at it for decades. Um, but because no one knew about it, no one with more power and more access to services were backing up the data, reproducing the data. Shit. So... Anyway, that leaves us in 2019. There was a really good paper that came out um, just, I think, like November of last year. And the paper is called A Systematic and Critical Review of Bacteriophage Therapy Against Multi-Resistant Escape. Escape is an anagram for all the troublesome superbugs, uh, organisms in humans. Uh, and this is by Lynn L. Haddad, and it was published in the Infectious Diseases Journal. Um, so... This has gotten a huge amount of support. It's a very well done, um, it's a meta-analysis, so it's not independent research. This is looking at all of the journals her and her team could find over the last like 40 years, looking into the success of this bacteriophage treatment. Mm-hmm. And so in the end, they found, I think, 30 journals uh, which treated a few thousand patients. And they found that overwhelmingly that it was a 87% of the journals that they looked at, it's like 22 or whatever of the journals, um, found that bacteriophage therapy was an effective tool against multi-drug-resistant organisms. Wow. Right? Okay. So, so why is this not front-page news around all these kind of, you know, well, bacterial look, resistance? In the industry, and all this, kind of this is pretty big, but it's hard to get your head around. Um, right. And again, I guess that's true. I mean, we've just spent 20 minutes discussing it on a, you know, fringe podcast about science. Yeah, like, exactly. It's probably also not nearly as... You won't have a drug company who's just selling pop it out thousands, millions of pills of one thing. You don't come up with one molecule and just manufacture it, right? You need to be tailoring that. So it's going to be done by labs, not by companies. So it's kind of a hard mm. thing to get behind financially. Unless you have a very big state sector like some of the, like Russia might have, right? Exactly. And they're, and they're not just being used um, in labs in Russia. They're being used clinically. Does it mean that the cost of these cures, inverted commas, would be astronomical because... Um, on an individual basis, so instead of I a don't company think it'd making, be astronomical. We're not, we're not, we wouldn't be anywhere near the billion dollars for one drug, for two years of, of utility. Yeah. Right? Um, no, what it, I mean is, I mean to the patient because the the well, upside of these huge drugs that apply blanket yeah. is that they can be used by the marginal cost for the individual person to be quite low, mm. right? But if we have to tailor these bacteria, to tailor these viruses well, to the bacteria on what each kind time, of medical support system you have yeah, right. in the country, right? Like, we don't pay for antibiotics here if you really need them. Yeah. Or we pay very little, right? Um, I know, but it's if, if, it, if it's been an individually tailored virus for this one thing and you've got to, you know, think, you get what, a couple of hundred uses out of it maybe? I don't know. Like, I think the way it goes is most people are still able to use regular antibiotics. The instance of superbugs, even though it's a big problem, it still isn't huge. Yeah. What, 1%, 2% of, of serious infections are might be superbug Super related? Yep. Um, and so you, those patients, this would be more of a regular treatment. The same way you'd have surgery or go in for chemotherapy or whatever it is to treat a serious illness. Hmm. We'd be treating these infections as serious illnesses and they'd be receiving proper therapy. So you go to the hospital and you'd have to have the lab, the microbiologist work out which phages to use and you'd be administered those treatments like you'd be administered very serious, you know, treatments. Um, that's one kind of view of it, you know. Um, and so the cost would be, yeah, probably commensurate with many other more serious interventions that take home, then take home antibiotics. Though that said, once it's done, you pretty much set it and forget it and you'd be able to go home once you're kind of, once you've sorted out what you have. Mm. But basically it's more, it's, it's definitely more focused therapy. Okay. The same way the surgery is focused therapy on a single person. Cool. Um, so that's pretty cool. 
Um, it's, very, it's very cool. And yeah. it kind of gives us a bit of hope as well because it seems so bleak, the idea it of does. this bacterial resistance. And then, yeah. you know, in 20, 30 years or whatever, it's going to be, you know, mm. you get, it, get an infection and then it's like, well, I'm done. Well, or like I've got to cut, basically you have to cut, it'd be amputation again, right? That's what they're saying. Exactly. Um, and which is what we do now. Like we, we I, I know patients who have had lost limbs because of infection. Right. Um, either due to the therapy itself, so some of the very strong treatments we use for infections or from the infection itself. It's just, it's not responding to anything. Well, it's still... Orth- orthopedics is probably the, the specialty where people would lose a limb due to infection. An infection we can't treat, we can't get rid of. It's rare, but it does happen. Sometimes people lose a leg or, or something because we can't get rid of that infection. Has anyone lost a penis? That's where my brain I'm went. I'm sure they have. Okay. I'm sure they have. Tragic. Yeah, so that's all pretty cool. Um, and this paper was quite uh, quite encouraging. That uh, We're not there yet. And again, the power, it's lots of papers, low power, low numbers. Some of these people were also on antibiotics at the same time, so it's not always easy to tease out what percentage of the effect was due to the phage treatment versus the antibiotic versus right. the combination. Especially if they just found it in a cupboard and decided to take it for a couple exactly. of days. Like Michael Hayston. I can't believe that. Yeah, but that's everyone. So many Is people. Is it? Yeah. Because that... that oh. I, I guess, times, okay, look, it's hard for me to tell because I've, I've spent the last six, seven years in a medical field right like and your but, dad's a doctor dad's that's a GP, true who should be on the front line of knowing better yeah. so you know i'd hope that your dad wasn't giving you guys antibiotics when you have a sore throat no um but yeah no out in public most people i see if someone's cold just pop cold, it. someone's like oh have you, have you, are you on are you on antibiotics have you taken antibiotics you should probably go get some antibiotics yeah and that's just a very normal way of speaking <sighs> people just don't know and they also don't know that antibiotics are bacterial antibiotic anti antibugs they don't know that it's they think that viruses, bacteria, they're all versions of the same bad thing when they're completely different. These probably are also the kind of people that if you told them that bio, bio comes from the uh, Greek the meaning life. life. Yeah. This is anti-life. Yeah. Don't take it. Yeah. Unless you're really sure you know what you're doing. Because there's, oh, there's good bugs too, right? <laughs> and that's the other thing is if you take these, um, if you take antibiotics, you're carpet bombing every bug that's susceptible in your body. Yeah. Whereas if you do these tailored phage treatments, the idea is that you're only attacking the ones you want to get rid of and the ones in your gut and everywhere else. And we've spoken already today about how good bacteria, bacteria are actually helpful and might be yeah. really important. You don't want to get rid of those. Um, and this doesn't get rid of those. Right. Um, the study also found that there's no increase in death or no noted death or side effects related to the phage treatment itself. Mm-hmm. Um so when people had resolution of their illness, they had full resolution of their illness and they didn't have any other side effects and there was no I guess, evidence of the bug doing anything else bad. So that's good. Sick. Mm. That was really cool. I like that a lot. Mm. So just a little bit of kind of, that's a little kind of gleaming light of hope for people out there who are getting spazzed out. It is still pretty rare to have bugs we can't treat and we do get rid of, we still get rid of most infections. Yeah. But yeah, it's getting harder and harder to do. Mm. Well, good. Mm. Thanks for that summary. I feel like is that, that too wordy? There's no, a, there's no. Like, I, I, I was I was wrapped by it actually. Yeah. I had I had not much to add because I don't know too much about it. But that was that was like yeah, I enjoyed. it. Well, I mean, look, being a doctor working in orthopedics, we deal with bugs all the time, infections mm. all the time, and I never heard about this until my lab started doing work into this maybe six months ago, and my supervisor told me about this, and I I had never heard of this treatment in my entire life. Right. And so it's no surprise that people in the public have no idea about this or that even other doctors don't know about it. Yeah. It's, it's amazing how it's, you know, this is Eastern medicine, sort of quote unquote, right? Yeah. And one of the things that was really interesting in one of the articles I read was that, um, you know, they find that these, these bacteriophages, which exist in the wild, like we said, they live in springs and water, bodies of water and things like that. And there may be sort of a, a connection with the idea of these healing bodies of water. People go to certain bodies of water to be healed. Mm. Some of these might maybe have the right or high kind of volumes of these bacteriophages. And there actually may be a therapeutic benefit for certain illnesses in certain bodies of water. In particular, in areas where you have that bacteria that's running rampant. So which is why, why would the Ganges be healing for cholera? Well, it's because there's lots of cholera in the area and, you know, it's a good place for viruses that attack it to, to, to actually, propagate. Yeah, that's right. So 
to uh, yeah sharpen their swords, so to speak. Now, having seen the Ganges, I'm sure it's a cause of more illness yeah, than it's cured to. Presume so. In but but maybe a hundred years ago, century. when they described yeah. this, it wasn't quite so bad, and maybe there was a net benefit to it. I'm sure that's not how it is now. <laughs> but that's really interesting. Again, we look at this idea of Eastern medicine, and there may be some scientific underpinnings to some of it. Wow. And, but, and not gonna, in a way that we would the, ever the, 20, the, the second half of the 21st century is going to be yeah. all about meridians and, it's and not about the magnesium, energy flow. And, it's not about the magnesium salts, you know, coming yeah. out of the Yancey. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know. Epsom. Exactly. It, it could be... Because people look at the water, they look at the most basic compositions. They're like, well, the water, the Red Sea, is, is, uh, it's healing, right? It must be because of its high, high sodium or it's got a, like a high calcium kind of content. There could be something that's a little bit smaller than calcium or magnesium, you know, molecules. Um, and that's kind of cool, right? It's great. Cool. Well, that's it. That is it for uh, Jeremy's Iron. If you dig the show, get in touch with us, Jeremy's Iron Podcast at gmail.com or on Facebook. Where else? Jeremy's Iron.com. Yep. And also, we have... <laughs> what other form of media do we have? Oh, we? oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, we have a cold calling service. Yeah. <laughs> uh, tab. I'll put, the, I'll put the tabs up on the website for the uh, the, the tabs the for the show. Yep. And also look at the back of your calls docket for any other <laughs> information we do provide. We print out updates on backs of docket paper. <laughs> That's it. Jeremy's on coming to a toilet stall and docket paper near you. We should be printing on toilet paper. Another great idea. <laughs> We're full of them. See you next week. Ciao. <laughs>